0: Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us this morning and giving us your word. And we ask, Lord, that now that you would fill us with an awareness of what you desire, that our hearts would be humble and sensitive to what you are going to say to us through your word and by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, what we, what we know not would you teach us. What we are not would you make us. And Lord, what we have not, Would you give us, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In his letter to the churches that have been spread across the Mediterranean because of persecution, James is seeking to encourage his readers to remain steadfast in the midst of their trial or the midst of their test. Now, to remain steadfast means that you are aware that this trial or this test is purposeful. And so you have your eyes fixed on the prize of maturity in Christ. And because you know this is what God is doing, you're not allowing yourself to be swayed off course. You're determined to stay the course and through that trial, grow in Christ's likeness or arrive at maturity. Now, the reality is we will never arrive at maturity fully, but we're on this journey together to do that. But James is a realist, and as we are remaining steadfast in that trial, he knows that we really don't know what we need to do. And so he says, if you are lacking wisdom, you simply need to ask of God, and God will do what? He'll give you wisdom. Wisdom. And God then gives us wisdom by virtue of his word and reveals himself in that word and he implants it in us. And in the beginning of this book, he talks about the fact that believers are those who have had the word implanted in their hearts. They are regenerated. But that word then coming to a believer is now given to them by means. It is the means of wisdom, but that word can be Received, but not having any effect. And so there's a responsibility on our shoulders to receive the word of God no matter what the test is and to have it work on our heart to such a point that that word now is bearing fruit in how we think and what we say and how we behave. And so this is the process that James is giving us through chapter 1. In chapter 1, it's all about, again, remaining steadfast in that test, looking for wisdom, allowing that wisdom to affect our heart to the point that we are now changing and living in such a way that would evidence maturity and growth in our life. In chapter 2, then, James jumps into the first topic of his letter, which he's already planted the seed for in chapter 1. And he's addressing the specific test or trial um, to reveal the genuineness of our faith. He does that through through this book. But in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, in particular, he is dealing with the subject of showing partiality. And in unpacking that subject, he uses an illustration talking about a rich man comes into church, a poor man comes into church. The assumption here is that they're both unbelievers. They're coming to the assembly but they are treated in completely different ways. And he's pointing out the fact that our our natural sinful hearts will tend to want to treat the rich person with partiality, with favoritism, because we're attracted to the things that maybe that rich person can bring. We can think of it corporately, where we can say, ah, look, it would be great to have that person in, because we know they'll give, and that'll increase you know, our, our funds. On a personal level, we're like, oh, they're rich. We like to be around rich people. Why? It's not just because they're, you know, they're nice people. It's because we might, or well, they might rub something off that we can catch and we can benefit from, right? So we think of it in those terms, and I think that is true. But it's not just about rich and poor. That's just an illustration of a bigger picture of what it means to show partiality. And what James is getting at is that uh, our lives have been shaped by beliefs and attitudes framed by our families, by our culture, by our ethnicity, by our religion, by our background, and that these beliefs and attitudes become a grid through which we tend to filter how we respond to people. And it all happens in a moment. We don't stand there and watch someone come to our assembly and say, now how should I treat this person? I mean, it's just, this is all happening in just seconds and moments. Why? Because you've already been thinking about these things, and you have a natural bent and tendency to award things. And James is saying, listen, showing partiality is a problem in the church. And in today's culture, the, the kind of filters we use to show partiality have to do with things like the color of someone's skin, the level of their education, the town or region uh, in which they live, the kind of accent they have, the clothes that they're wearing, their ethnicity, their gender, their sexual preference, their religious persuasion, their political beliefs, their physical makeup, their attractiveness, their age, and that's just, that's just a short list of things. You can add to that um, that even where someone graduated from college or a sports team they follow or the brand of car you drive can be significant things to, to, to filter someone's view of you. We all do it. And that's the point. He's not saying, there's some of you that do this. So identify the some and go and tell them about this. No, the whole point is he's writing to the church Say this is a problem. This is our problem. We all naturally tend to do this, but we are now God's children. And because we're God's children, we are citizens of a new kingdom. And that new kingdom is radical. It's different than the world. And we talked last week about what our society needs is not some reform to stop issues of racism and stuff like that. What they need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need the church because it's in the church where all these differences come together and unite as one. The church is the beautiful picture of of unity with its own built-in diversity. It's a wonderful thing. And God is calling us to that. But there's still this tendency to want to show partiality. And we are guilty of it in so many different ways. And so as we were looking at uh, the text last week, you could summarize it basically uh, by saying this. Showing partiality is contrary to God's nature. God does not show partiality. In fact, if anything, he demonstrates that by the fact that he sent his son to this earth, left the riches of heaven, became poor for us. And Jesus, when he preached the gospel of the kingdom, did not preach just to the Jews, he was also giving a gospel message that was ultimately to go to the Gentiles. He wasn't being exclusive. He wasn't saying, oh, they can't have this too. And in fact, you get to the, the epistles in the book of Romans, and the heart of the book of Romans is to say to the people who are not Jews, you are just as much a part of the church as the Jews are. Because I have taken you and brought you together. You are one man. That is the argument that Paul uses in Ephesians. It's a wonderful thing. God's nature is such that he does not show partiality. And when we come to our text today, we're going to see that showing partiality is contrary to God's law. Or to put it more pastorally, showing partiality is a spiritually dangerous practice that violates the law of God. I don't think anyone in here today who is following Christ ever wants to Deliberately violate God's law, unless, of course, you are wanting to strive after sin. <laughs> we don't—I mean, we, we don't want to be violators of God's law, do we? So, as we unpack our text for today, verses 18 or 8 through 13, um, there's really three kind of tiers to what's going on. James is is seeking to show um, how showing partiality violates the second commandment of God's law—to love your neighbor as yourself. Secondly, he seeks to establish one part uh, of this idea that breaking the law in one part is to break the whole law. And and finally, as we get to the end, um, in light of those two truths, James wants his readers to understand that God's law will be the standard by which everyone will be judged to the end. And we then should live in light of that coming judgment by being merciful to others kind of just summarizing the passage for us. So let's jump right in into this section, and I'm dividing into three parts. First of all, fulfilling the law. This is verse 8 in particular. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now remember one of the principles that we've talked about before, and that is we always study a text in its context, right? Because you could jump into James here and pull this verse out and actually say a lot more about what this verse in your thinking is saying than actually what it's saying. It is isn't a flow of thought. James is making an argument here, and he's laying a foundation. That should be true for us, but at the same time, it is, it is getting to a point with his readers. So it appears then in verse 8 that James is anticipating the objection of his readers About what he just said about not showing partiality. They might be saying something along these lines James, lighten up a bit, dude. They probably didn't say, dude, but you know, these, you know, they're Californian, Mediterranean people, okay? Um, You have it all wrong. Here is what is going on. By showing the rich man and uh, the best seat in the house, we're only following the biblical command to show proper honor. Where honor is due. Think about it, James. If you were rich, that is how you would want to be treated. We're just following the golden rule. Now, friends, he brings up then by saying, if you're really following the royal law, According to the scriptures, that you should love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. So there's there's almost, not a sarcastic tone to it, but he's like, okay, let's go there. Now the truth is, the royal law is important. It is given to us from the king. And of course, that king ultimately is Jesus Christ. It's the same law that has been talked about in chapter 1, verse 25. This law of liberty, which by its context is referring to the word of God, that word of God that is implanted in every believer, but it's also that law that is the basis and guide for every believer to, to live out their sanctification, their growth in likeness. So specifically the royal law is referring to the whole law as interpreted and handed over to the church in the teaching of Jesus. And so the law is contained in Scripture both in the Old and New Testament, and is our authoritative authoritative rule and guide for life and godliness. So it's God's word that reveals God to us. It's God's word that reveals our condition. And it's God's word that reveals and teaches us how we should think and how we should live. That's what Titus chapter 2 is talking about when we read this morning as we began our time together. So it is this law that we should read and study with a view to application in our hearts, and that will bear fruit in how we think and how we speak and how we behave. James, however, is not focusing on the vertical part of that law, he's focusing on the horizontal part of that law. And it all comes back down to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And so we want to think a little bit here about Leviticus. 19. So you can look up on the screen or you can look in your Bibles. But here's what we find God saying early on then in the Old Testament. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you should love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Don't forget that I am the Lord what he's saying is, this is so important for you to understand, he's punching it at the end by saying, I am the Lord. So this is a command to his people to love their neighbor as themselves. So the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is quoted six times in the Gospels, once in Romans, and once in Galatians 5.14, and we're going to look at that. But if you remember from last week, Leviticus 19 also speaks about this whole idea of favoritism. Just a few verses um, before this, literally a few, it says this. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And what he's saying there, what God is saying here is, listen, you don't just defer to the poor because they're poor, and you don't, you know, Honor the rich just because they're rich. The measuring stick for how you exercise judgment is my righteousness. There's a fairness that should be applied to all. Now, I think what's interesting today, we don't want to get into it politically, but there's a sense in which that is not the heartbeat of what we're seeing in the political realm. Let's just have some people that are going to be fair and partial and judge something for what it is. There's always this kind of... Um, bias that wants to come in and and shift the lens, so to speak, to fit their own agenda. God is saying, "Uh uh-uh, that's not how it's to be done. Righteousness should be the measurement that we use, and that should be true across. So we, we are treating our neighbors then as ourselves, and we're doing that in this relationship here as far as not showing partiality. Now to Matthew chapter 22 and verses 37 and following. Here is what Jesus is saying. He says, And uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second, second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you have a vertical command having to do with your relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And that's not a distinction, by the way, of our makeup, heart, soul, and mind, okay? It's just a way of reinforcing in, with, with all your being. Secondly, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. So there's this horizontal command, and this is where James is, is coming. But we also need to remember, though, that you cannot love your neighbor as yourself if you're not loving God with all your being, okay? So that has to be there first before you can do this. Think of it, think of it as a fountain that's spilling over. You have the first tier, you have the second tier. Okay, you have, to, you have to be doing one in order to be effectively doing the other. Now, I want you to read this text carefully. How many commands do we have here? Verse 40. On these, what? Two commands depend all the law and the prophets. In today's if you want to call it modern Christian psychology, a third commandment has been added from this text. And the third commandment is, well, you need to love yourself. That's what Jesus is saying here. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. There are not three commands here. There are only two commands. And Jesus, along with other times when this Expression is being used is not saying you are commanded to love yourself. He's using something that we already do. We already love ourselves. In fact, we love ourselves too much. That is the problem. See, I think that most people when they get up in the morning, they take a shower and then they finally look in the mirror and they respond with a variation of the following word. It's the word Now, if you're from my generation, the right response that maybe you think people should have is the Arthur Fonzarelli response. And if you remember his response, he was a character in Happy Days, and he was like the cool guy that would come along, and he would jump in front of the mirror to comb his hair, and it was always perfect, and he would go, Hey! right." I don't think we go to the mirror and say, Hey. I think most of us go there and we go, Ugh. and we spend the next twenty minutes to half an hour uning what we see in the mirror. Right? Now, we wash away blemishes. We fix our hair with gel, paste, and mousse and hairspray. We put creams and salves and makeup, and we shave stubble, eyebrows, other things too. We're just wondering, why, why is that growing there, right? I mean, and it's just like, ugh. Now, friends, there is a natural tendency then for us to look in that mirror and want to fix what we see. Why? Is it because we don't love ourselves? Or is it actually because we love ourselves? And we, we, we spend our time doing that. Why? Because we care. About ourselves in that sense. It's natural. It's part of our natural humanity. It's what the heart of sinful humanity does. It is full of self love. And so here's the point you can care about your own needs, but do you care about the needs of others like you care about your own needs? You care about your own feelings. So show the same care for the feelings of others. You care about your own desires. Do you care for the desires of others? You care about how people treat you. Do you care about how you are treating other people? See, and James is saying to his readers, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Now, friends, it should be our goal. Don't get me wrong. It should be our goal to keep the second greatest commandment. This speaks to all of our interactions with mankind, how we speak to them, how we treat them, how we think of them, how we encourage and support them. And it is interesting that we don't usually think of love as a law or an obligation. We think of love as a sentiment. In other words, I'm going to love if I feel like loving. But that's not what we're called to do here. Right? God and Jesus aren't saying, hey, if you feel like loving your neighbor as yourself, and go for it. But don't do it unless you feel like it. I mean, it's not genuine unless you feel like it. Right? You've heard things like that before? And we say, no, this is what you're commanded to do. Full stop. Exclamation point. Your sentimental feelings about loving that person are not the point. Except that when you are obedient to God's command, that will produce in you feelings of affection in order to carry out what he's commanded. So now Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So on a horizontal level, this is what it means then to live out the law, the royal law. It's to love others as yourself. It just encompasses Um, all those things that God has revealed, in particular the horizontal commands that he has communicated to us. So as we seek to apply it to our lives, we can clearly see that God expects you and me to think and to speak and to act in ways that honor mankind regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of whether they're rich or poor, regardless of where they might live and so on and so forth. We're not to be showing partiality. We should be loving our neighbors as ourselves. And James is saying it's a good thing to be fulfilling the royal law. And it's a good thing to be loving your neighbor as yourself. So keep doing it. Don't stop. But then look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And are convinced by the law as transgressors. So he's he's anticipating his hearers saying, "Listen, the reason we're taking care of these rich people is because we want to show them honor. We want to we want to flesh out the second greatest commandment to love others. Okay, that's good, but when you're doing that, you are also neglecting the poor, and in neglecting the poor, you find yourself then sinning." And you find yourself as transgressors. So let's move now from here to breaking the law. Fulfilling the law is something that we should be seeking to do. And here's the point, guys. You and I can't do it. (laughs) We strive for it, but the reality is that you and I can't do it. Only Christ can do it. But here's the reality. I think this is more where we live, isn't it? We're breaking the law. You may be fulfilling the law over here, by taking care of and honoring these rich people, but you are breaking the law here by dishonoring the poor. See where he's going? And Kent Hughes speaks about honoring the rich while at the same time sliding the poor, and he says this, it is not merely a lack of courtesy, but a scandalous breach of God's love. James now is is starting to, to turn the screw on this topic. And he's identifying a problem. We've read already in verse 9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Friends, it's not so much if, it's more the idea of since. You and I will show partiality. And as believers, we need to recognize that we have a tendency to do that, and we need to do our best to catch ourselves so that we're not doing that. But since we do, we need to recognize that when we do, we are committing sin. The idea of sin is the idea of missing the mark. It's a, an, an archery kind of image. A guy goes out to the range, and he pulls his arrow back, and he shoots at the target and he is consistently missing. We're missing the standard, the target, the goal of God's law. And as such, we are convicted and we're found guilty as transgressors. And that word transgressors is a legal word that means to violate the law. Now, if we're honest, we tend to have a very low view of our own sinfulness, We think about this image and we think to ourselves, okay, maybe when I pull out the the arrow and I I shoot my arrow, maybe it doesn't hit the bullseye. Maybe it hits one of the rings around the bullseye. But the reality is, friends, you're not even hitting the target. And quite frankly, the owners of the archery range are going to come to you and say, stop shooting your arrows because you're endangering people all over here. Because you're nowhere near the target. You're all over the place. See, we have a very low view. Like, oh, our sinfulness is not that. But it's just a little bit off. No, it's way off. And we often approach the commands of God like we approach tests or exams that we were given in high school or that we were taking in college. And we, we say, you know, if I can just come away with a B, or maybe you know, 85 to, to, to 90, somewhere. In there. I'll be happy with that. That should be sufficient. We bring that kind of mentality to our walk with God and to keeping the law. And we're saying, isn't it enough? I've done enough. And God says, no, you have not done enough. And So here's the principle for us in verse 10. James is going to give this principle in anticipation, again, of the logic of his readers and, and they, they might be saying something like this, James, I get where you're coming from now. We've, we've not been treating everyone impartially, but it's, a really, uh, it's really important that we, we honor these people. I mean, is it really that big of a deal? Yes, we've shown favor to the rich. Yes, we've, we've slighted the poor. But honestly, it's not like we're running around committing murder and committing adultery. Or We're just trying to be good neighbors to the rich man. And following God's second commandment. But here's the principle, friends, and this is where we need to, to see the, 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 the reality of what's going on in James' words. He says um, in this principle, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And this idea of four shows that James is looking to support his argument from verse 9. And what we find here is that the law is united. It's unity. Let me give them two pictures here. I'm going to give you two pictures. The the two pictures that help us understand this is that the law is like a chain. You break one link in that chain, what do you do? The the chain is broken. The whole chain is ruined. Uh, Another way to look at it is this. It's like a window or a mirror. If you put a crack in the mirror... It ruins the whole thing. Now, I know some of you are driving around with windshields that have cracks going all over the place, right? And one of you, if you're married, is saying, we need to get that, you know, fixed. And, you know, usually the husband's like, ah, it's okay, no big deal. I can see. I can see through the, I can see through the windshield. Fine. But it's broken. The window is broken. It's not, it's not clear. So having said that, we need to remember then that laws... Are not necessarily all equal in their importance. The scriptures teach that some sins are worse than others. The Apostle Paul, in particular, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 says this: flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, or sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So there's, there's kind of a difference here about not only where this sin is taking place, but how this sin is actually carried out. Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So let's put this together. To think about sexual lust breaks the law, but to actually commit adultery is more serious than thinking about it. You get that? They're both sins. They both violate the law, but one is worse than the other. Or to hate someone in your heart breaks the law, but to actually commit murder is more serious than simply thinking about it. That's not saying one is diminished as if it's not important. No, it is. They both break the law. They're both serious, but one is more serious or is of of more importance as far as how weighty it is than the other. So that's just kind of a side note to say these chains are broken, but this is all the law. So what James is saying is that whatever sin it is, it renders you a lawbreaker. It renders you guilty. Guilty. And you can be a good person in many parts, but if you break the law, you are a lawbreaker. You are guilty. Now, friends, think about this. You have a man who's standing before a judge, and the man is guilty of murder, and this is what he says. He says, Judge, I know that I killed that man, and I'm so sorry that I did that, but I've been a faithful husband I pay my taxes with joy. I have a safe driving record. I cut my neighbor's grass and take out their trash. I serve at my church in the children's ministry. All those things may be good. But he's still guilty of committing murder. He's a lawbreaker. So James is saying that our partiality then is sin, And if our partiality is sin, then we have violated the law. And if we violated the law, that makes us guilty. Okay? So that's the principle is given. Now the principle is illustrated. And notice what he says. He uses two of the most serious social sins to make his point. For he who said, do not commit adultery and also said, do not murder. Where do we get those from? Huh? The Ten Commandments. And he says, if you do not commit, to, commit adultery, but do murder, you have become transgressors of the law. In other words, to do one is all that needs to happen in order for you to be guilty of it all. That's his point. He's using an extreme example to make his point. And there's also a context here. The Jews tended to regard the law as a series of detached commands. To keep one of those commands was to gain credit. To break one was to incur debt. This is is where Judaism had gotten. It's not because they're reflecting the truth of God's Word, but this is how the religion kind of developed. And therefore, a man could could add up the ones that he kept, and he would subtract the ones that he broke, And he would emerge somehow with a a moral credit or debit balance. And friends, this is simply the philosophy that is behind much of religion that we see across the world today that weighs the good with the bad, and hopefully the good is going to outweigh the bad, and I'll be accepted or I'll be rejected based on those things. That is not the gospel. That is not how it works with Christ at all. God did not give us his laws so that we could be saved through keeping them. If that were the case, no one would be saved because you and I cannot keep the law. God gave his laws to show us we fall short of his requirements and therefore how desperately we need the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. The purpose of God's law is to convict us as transgressors so that we will flee to Christ. And the the, the law exposes our sinfulness, and thus our need for Christ. Now friends, this is weighty stuff, isn't it? But it's weighty stuff that we need to get through. In the context here, he's saying, listen, if you show partiality, it's sin, and you're guilty. And if you're guilty, and guess what? You're going to be standing before God one day and you're going to have to give account. So James has established that and now he shows how serious that guilt is by reminding us that judgment is coming. So not only are we to, to, to fulfill the law, the reality is that we break the law, but now the reality is that we will be judged by that same law. Look at verse 12 and 13. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For mercy is without, uh, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And friends, it's kind of like uh, students in a, in a college class that are asking their professor, uh, Professor, is this going to be on the final exam? And the professor says, yes, you're accountable for it all. Okay, is this final exam cumulative? Yes, it's cumulative. All right? And the reality is, friends, in our, in our own Christian walk, uh, there is something going on here. And that is that, that you are responsible for, and you're accountable for what you have done. And yes, it will be cumulative. Now, we're not talking here about your eternal state. We're talking about believers who are going to be judged by what they have done in relationship to Allowing the word of God implanted in their hearts to be the means by which they're fleshing out their responsibilities before God and to these people. So, friends, we're, we have a final exam. And the question he's going to address here is are you ready for that final exam? Well, let's look a little bit deeper in what he's saying. First of all, we're called to live under the law of liberty. Some may wonder, some believers may wonder, I thought that believers would not be judged at all since Christ bore our judgment on the cross. And I would say this, yes, Christ bore our judgment on the cross. We're not going to be judged from from an eternal perspective, meaning our salvation, but there is going to be a judgment that is coming. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 24, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes um, him who sent me uh, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So if you're a believer, you're no longer dead, you're alive. It's a different category. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself has been the one who has taken our condemnation. The wrath of God has been poured on his shoulders. Maybe a way to think about this is this. When a husband and wife stand at the altar and they say, I do, they are entering now into marriage. They are married. That is is a fact. That is a reality. But that doesn't mean that their marriage is sinless. They're still going to be issues of sin that they're going to have to deal with, they're going to have to identify, they're going to have to confess. And so that relationship in the marriage is healthy when those issues then are dealt with. So you are not judged at your salvation because Jesus is the one that takes that judgment on you, but there's still now a judgment that awaits you based on what you think, what you say, what you do. We're going to Talk a little bit more about that here. So these verses um, here echo the truth that Christ bore the punishment that we deserve for our sin. Now, there is a judgment that awaits the unbelievers, and that's called the great white throne judgment. Now, you'll find that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, and some other places in Scripture too. But that is the judgment Uh, where all those who would not bow the knee, all those people who shook their fist against God, who rebelled against his grace and his kindness and his goodness, they will have to give account, and they will all find themselves unable to stand. That's what Psalm 1 says. The ungodly will not stand in the judgment. They will not have a leg to stand on. We don't have time to walk through that. There is this great white throne judgment. But... For believers, there's what's called the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat. Now we don't need to worry about the great white throne judgment, but we need to be concerned about the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul lays it out for us in First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what his due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil, And the idea of evil there has the idea of whether it was helpful or worthless. The idea is worthless. Now see, we've been set free from the bondage of sin through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. But now as followers of Christ, we're called to live out that gospel in a way that pleases Christ. And then Paul also tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3... 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. Let's read this here um, about this encounter. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day, that's the judgment day, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So although our sins have been removed from us through the death of Christ, our lives will go undergo an exam an evaluation, a trial by fire. Those things that we have done out of love for Christ, they will be evident and there will be a reward. Those things that were done out of selfish or sinful motives that are worthless um, in God's sight will be burned as wood, hay, and straw. Here's how Kent Hughes describes this encounter. This judgment will be no casual prelude to eternity. It will be a solemn time. True, some believers' works will be seen as gold, silver, costly stones, but others will suffer immense shame for their wood, hay, and straw. Truly, our work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. So the law of liberty is the law that sets us free And we live and act as true believers when we have been saved by God's grace and who will be judged on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness. And that righteousness frees us from the law of bondage and judges us uh, under the redeeming law of liberty, God's word, the gospel. So we recognize the law of liberty is the law that says, yes, you're condemned, yes, you have sinned, but Christ has paid for it. And because Christ has paid for it and you have embraced it, you are now under freedom. See, we think of the law as what? Bondage. But the law of liberty is freedom. And so what James is saying is, listen, your behavior, the way you think, the way you act, in other words, your total conduct is to be a reflection of this freedom that you now have in Christ. So James is telling us to live in light of the fact that we will soon stand before Jesus. Not only are we called to live under the law of liberty, we're called to live Under the law of mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now, friends, these are strong and penetrating words. We might call them black and white words. They draw the line in the sand. They're bold statements. And I realize if if you're used to going to church where, you know, everyone's all happy and joyful and celebratory and it's like what are we dealing with all this heavy stuff for it's because there's a means to an end that James is getting at here we see the truth through the hardness of what he is revealing here and he's saying that judgment is without mercy to one who has shown uh, received judgment yeah judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy if you profess to know Christ And do not show mercy to those who are needy. Your profession is worthless. And when you stand before God, you will not receive mercy. And the point here is that mercy is fruit or evidence of pure religion. It is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are people who are to be merciful to others. We don't have time to go into the parable of the unmerciful slave simply to say that there was a master whose slave owed, in our turns, in probably about $40 million. The guy couldn't pay it. He let him go free. The servant goes, finds the guy that owes him a little bit of money, and he puts him in jail because he wouldn't pay it up. And the master finds out about it. And when the master finds out about it, here's what we find. You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should uh, not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers and they, uh, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you, Jesus says, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We have been the recipients of mercy. So James is circling back now to his topic of showing partiality. (laughs) He's saying, listen, if you are not showing partiality, you are hindering mercy from bearing fruit in your life. In fact, if that bearing fruit of mercy is not there, it might actually mean that you're only a professor of Christ and you are not a true believer in Christ. Now friends, that's hard stuff. That's no soft talk. If your life is characterized by discrimination and favoritism, it gives evidence that your soul is still dead. If your heart is not moved to be merciful to those who are less fortunate, it might be time for you to do some soul searching. And you might find out that you are actually not a true believer. And the way someone measures that is not because they walked an aisle or they have it written in their Bible. The way a person measures whether or not they're a true believer is by looking at the fruit in their life. It comes as a result of the word having its way in their hearts. So friends, we cannot be cavalier about this. Pure religion is heart religion. It doesn't just affirm words. It doesn't just profess to follow Christ. It doesn't just conform to the habits and practices of the church. It acts out of the spirit-breathed word of life. It lives out what has been implanted in the heart. So this morning, how how is your walk with God? Are you a merciful person? Are you an impartial person? Is your heart fighting against the tendency to, 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 to not receive what God is saying through James in this text? Or are you receiving these words with gladness? Yes, you may be being exposed for your tendencies for or for showing partiality, but it's a wonderful exposure because it takes you back then to the gospel. And it shows you your desperate need. Friends, too many people are showing lip service to Christ and then going out and living like the world in this arena. And he says here at the end, mercy triumphs over judgment. We who have been the recipients of mercy can now go toward that judgment and we can say, I know that I failed, but Jesus Christ has covered my sin by his shed blood. We have confidence because of him. Well, I just wanna, I wanna leave you just quickly three things just to, to wrap it up. Our time is gone. Um, and this is just a concluding thought. They're not on your screen. I think what we need here, three things. Number one, we need humility to receive his word. James is not pulling any punches, friends. He is meddling. He's getting to the heart of things. And if we're so used to being stroked, and we just want to be told how good, how nice we are and how wonderful it is to be part of the body of Christ. And it is wonderful to be part of the body of Christ. But that means that we need to listen to the master when he speaks, right? There are times as a dad you sit the family down and say, all right, we have to have a talk. And God now through James is saying, we, we need to have a talk, guys. We need humility to receive it. We need, secondly, honesty, honesty to apply it to our hearts. So this is the flow of argument for James. Humility to receive, but honestly then, to not just to say, oh yeah, that's, that's true, but it doesn't do anything. So honestly, that, that, that moves then to application in the heart. Are there ways that you, are there ways that I, are there ways that we as a church are showing partiality? Be honest about it. Number three. With those things being true, humility and honesty, the reality is that we have hope that is found in Christ to make progress in our progressive sanctification, our pursuit toward maturity, progress that would say, less showing partiality, less tendency to do that, this person with this particular characteristic that somehow for me in my makeup and it goes through my filter seems to be the kind of person I want to avoid I want to shun I want to stay away from now becomes the kind of person that I am pursuing because of the gospel and because of the word of God working in my heart friends we need this hard word so that we can live out in a way that honors God, both personally and corporately. Well, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna close without singing just because of time. Um, But Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. Lord, we thank you for the the brutal honesty of a pastor's heart in, in the person of James as he's writing this and we just wonder whether this was an issue that he saw personally in the early church and therefore he addresses it passionately boldly and clearly lord may gateway bible church be a church where everyone is welcome and lord that, that means people who are unbelievers people from all sorts of different persuasions can walk into this church and be received and we can sit here and we can worship God. They may not be believers, but they're observing it and they're hearing it and they're listening to the gospel. May we be a kind of church that is comfortable with that, knowing that that is the means by which the gospel is going out to the nations and to all kinds of different people who need it. And Lord, I know there's a, there can be an awkwardness that we have in our hearts because we want to protect our families or we, we, we are concerned about influences or examples. But Lord, you call people out of their sin and into your body through the gospel. You've done that with us and you're continuing to do it. And Lord, we ask that you would change our hearts. Lord, may we not have to change our name from Gateway Bible Church to Hindrance Bible Church. May we be a gateway, an avenue where people from all walks of life can find you, can see you and ultimately bow down to you. Because we have been successful by your grace, by your counsel, to not be partial, but to be very impartial and to be welcoming for your gospel kingdom purposes. Help us, Lord, today to be that church and that kind of person in your precious name. Amen.